The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find unsettling. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello my friends, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope 2023 is being good to you and that you've had a happy start to the new year, whatever that looks like for you. And hey, if not, here's your reminder that good things can happen at any time. There's a whole lot of toxic positivity that tends to fly around in January and it can sometimes leave us feeling like if we aren't smashing it 24-7 at the start of the year then the next 11 months are doomed. And that's simply not true and when you think about it it's quite silly. This is completely unrelated to today's podcast episode by the way and I do apologise for the tangent but as it's been on my mind I just thought I'd take the opportunity to say that I hope you're all taking care of yourselves and don't forget that things can and often do fall into place and work out for the best right when you least expect it, not necessarily on a calendar-based timescale. Anyway, on to today's story. I know many of our most recent episodes have had some creepy elements woven throughout them, but I feel like we haven't covered a pure supernatural or paranormal story for a while, so today I wanted to get a little spooky. I'm going to be telling you all about the mysterious and pretty controversial phenomenon that's come to be known as the Belmez Faces. We'll be hopping across to Spain for this tale, which involves some bizarre happenings in one family's home, in their kitchen to be exact. Whilst these events are widely considered to be unexplained, as with all good puzzling enigmas, plenty of theories have emerged over the years in an attempt to understand the cause of the Belmez faces. I know I'm being a bit cryptic, so with our intro over, let's get into the story. Belmez de la Moraleda is a small village in the Andalusia region of southern Spain. It's located in a mountainous area surrounded by olive groves and is comprised of a series of quiet, narrow, cobbled streets. As of 2018, the population of the village, which is often referred to simply as Belmez, was just 1,833. So although it really is a tiny community, thanks to the experiences of one local family, which began back in the 1970s, it is most certainly on the map. Meet Maria Gomez Camara, her husband Juan Pereira and their son Miguel. I very much hope I've pronounced all of their names correctly. I'm trying my best, so fingers crossed. The trio lived in their traditional home, which features a whitewashed exterior with tan-coloured doors and a small balcony and largely concrete floors throughout the interior. One day in August of 1971, Maria was in her kitchen when she noticed something very unusual. There was a very strange stain on the floor and she had no idea where it had come from. For whatever reason it might have been, she decided not to try and clean it off that day. And when she walked back into her kitchen the next morning, she was confused to find that the stain had changed somewhat. Over the next few days, this pattern continued and Maria witnessed the stain not only continuing to change shape, but bizarrely, it appeared to have changed positions too. But this wasn't all. The stain was no longer just a dark blemish on the concrete. 
what it had actually transformed into looked remarkably like an impression of a human face. This was very disconcerting, and Maria was so creeped out by the emergence of this unwelcome portrait that she set about trying to scrub it from her kitchen floor. However, no matter how hard she tried, absolutely nothing seemed to work. The stain would not budge. Evidently, Juan and Miguel were just as perturbed by this new addition to their home as Maria was, and Miguel took drastic action. Grabbing a pickaxe, he hacked away at the floor to destroy and remove the stain, relaying new concrete afterwards to repair the damage that had been done. And for about a week, it seemed that their rather extreme method had done the trick. That was until the image of another face materialised on the floor, and this one was even clearer than the original. Now, after the appearance of this second face, it seemed that word was spreading about these mysterious stains throughout the village, and it wasn't long before the information caught the attention of Belmez's mayor. His interest was officially piqued, and he rushed to order that this time the concrete floor must not be destroyed, but preserved and studied to try and determine what on earth was going on. The flooring was carefully cut out and removed from the family's home, leaving them to once again repair the mess left behind. Shortly after they'd fixed the floor, you guessed it, yet another face-shaped mark presented itself, and before they knew it, the family were locked into this cycle of destroying one stain only for another to pop up in its place. Eventually, it stopped being just one face at a time adorning the concrete, several eerie portraits started appearing on the floor, and the family recognised that they were fighting a losing battle. I'm going to pause for a moment to try and describe what these marks look like. I will be putting a couple of photos up on our Instagram page for you, but in the meantime, I'll do my best to paint you a visual of them. Some of the faces were quite abstract, almost like you have to squint a little to make out the details. Kind of like when you see those weird news articles about how someone thinks they've created a portrait of Jesus in their slightly burnt piece of toast and they try to sell it on eBay for a ridiculous amount of money. But when you look at images of the Belmez faces, most of them are a lot clearer than those strange food-based ones. A few of them have some consistent features actually, such as almond-shaped eyes and long, slim noses with slightly open mouths, yet others are completely different. There are even a couple of clusters of faces that appear physically close together that look like basic line drawings of people with the same forlorn expression. On the flip side, however, there are a few stains that are so abstract that it makes you question whether they should be counted at all. You'd have to sort of tilt your head and keep a real open mind to spot a face in them. But nonetheless, the events in Maria, Juan and Miguel's home were starting to garner more and more attention, and with that came a huge amount of scepticism too. More on that later. Whilst villagers and visitors alike were drawn to the house to try and see the marks for themselves, a number of parapsychologists, scientists, and those with an interest in the supernatural also came knocking, 
the study of the floor conducted on the order of the mare was inconclusive and no explanation as to why the stain had appeared could be gained from the analysis. And as you can imagine, this only fueled the interest in the case. At one point, the kitchen was even cordoned off and left untouched for three months to see what happened and at the end of it, the stains remained in place. The family's home was soon dubbed La Casa de las Caras, which translates to the House of the Faces. And some sources even report that local police were brought in to help control the vast crowds of visitors wishing to catch a glimpse of the strange portraits. It seems that the local authorities and the church officials in the village were not thrilled about the traction the faces were gaining, Partly because there were suddenly an alarming number of tourists trekking through their small community, but mostly because they were disturbed by the fact that they could not explain them. According to a BBC report I found from the late 90s, some days there could be over 5,000 people lining up outside the house ready to see the faces, and police guards were ordered to question anyone who appeared suspicious. I assume they were concerned about potential vandalism to the family's home, or perhaps it was a slightly panicked reaction to the sheer number of people who had infiltrated their quiet neighbourhood. Before long, two key figures emerged who would go on to be considered the main researchers of this apparent phenomenon. German lecturer of parapsychology Hans Bender and Spanish parapsychologist Hermann de Argumosa. Now, I wanted to tell you about the findings and opinions of these two men before we get to some of the more sceptical theories and theorists because I think they are pretty fascinating. Hermann spent time diving deep into the history of the village and specifically the land around the house and what he found was very interesting indeed. I imagine he would have arrived already armed with the base knowledge that the family's home was built around the 1830s on top of what was once a Christian cemetery. Before that, it had been used as a Muslim burial site and going back even further, it was used as a graveyard by the Romans. A couple of sources claim that during one of the removals of the kitchen floor, some of these remains were even dug up and removed, but I found it tricky to confirm that part. Regardless, this is all pretty spooky and it would certainly be my go-to first explanation if I lived in the house and anything paranormal or unexplained started happening. But Herman uncovered an additional piece of historical information that many consider a vital clue when it comes to possibly supernatural explanations of the Belmez faces. He discovered that around the 17th century, the governor of Granada, which is a province of Spain within Andalusia, murdered five members of a family in Belmez. The governor was from the village and several historical documents corroborated the story. Based on the research, it appears that the location of these murders was either in or near Maria's home. While some people latched on to this historical evidence as an explanation for the manifestation of the faces, believing that they could be the images of those who were murdered haunting the land they were killed on, Others argued it didn't make sense as more than five faces were now present in the kitchen. But Herman did not stop there. He also appears to have made several EVP or electronic voice phenomenon recordings to try and capture any otherworldly sound activity happening in the house. Apparently, a number of voices were captured on these recordings, including the voice of a child, and were described as, quote, 
a mixture of hell and a brothel, and things only get stranger. In the summer of 1972, her man was so intrigued and so determined to continue carrying out research in the kitchen that he offered to cover half the cost of converting another room in the house to a usable kitchen for the family. This was, of course, in order for him to keep working in the original kitchen adorned with the faces. Maria and Juan took him up on the deal and the renovation was set into motion. However, after only a short time of using their new second kitchen, the family were astonished to find that faces now began to appear in this room too. It must have felt like they were never going to be free of the mysterious marks in their home, and those who believed in their authenticity were both shocked and amazed at this new development. In the BBC article I mentioned, Hans Bender was even quoted as saying that the faces were, without a doubt, the most important paranormal phenomenon this century. But to certain sceptics, each new face-like stain that showed up only further added to their distrust of the assertion that this was truly a supernatural event. One notable figure on the side of the sceptics was José Luis Jordán Peña, the then Vice President of the Spanish Society of Parapsychology. José Luis actually headed up one of the first teams to analyse the faces in the concrete when they first appeared in 1971. His conclusions seemed to present a range of possible explanations that had little to do with the paranormal and a lot more to do with the presence of substances often found in people's kitchens at the time. José Luis noted that the stains could well be comprised of a mixture of soot and vinegar and the, quote, aggressive action of a chemical compound. From what I can gather, one of his suggestions was this that, in years past, soot, vinegar or other substances had mixed on the floor and been cleaned off with a specific product made in Germany that was sold to clean stains on concrete. His translated comments seem to suggest that this product may not have removed the stains permanently, but left them latent and bound to show up again one day, which would explain their sudden appearance or indeed reappearance. Now, much of the source material in this case is in Spanish, and whilst I can speak some conversational Spanish, translating scientific articles is a little past my ability level, so it's tricky to dig further into this. But I think it's fair to say that José Luis was not at all convinced that these marks were anything more than old stains. In fact, the BBC article notes that he even suggested it could alternatively be, quote, nothing more than a joke played between neighbours which got out of hand in a boring town. And he certainly wasn't alone in his thinking. If you listen to episode 5 of the podcast, which was all about spontaneous human combustion, you may remember me mentioning the well-known sceptic and investigator Joe Nicol. Well, he also decided to weigh in on the Belmez faces, and it seems that he was not particularly impressed. In his opinion, the portraits were fake, and he described them as looking amateurish. This theory that the faces were very much man or woman made was echoed by writer and the creator of Skeptoid.org, Brian Dunning. Brian believed that Maria herself had created the marks on the floor for financial gain. I assume via charging people to see them or billing camera crews after they filmed or photographed them. He believed that the faces 
areas were actually painted onto the concrete floor, first with actual paint and then later with some kind of acid, which could perhaps account for the change in style that we see over time. Now, obviously, both Brian Dunning and Joe Nicol are famous sceptics and I wouldn't have really expected them to come to any other conclusion. And I must admit that despite the fact that I do believe in the supernatural and have had paranormal experiences myself, I could see where they're coming from. Some of the faces do look quite drawn on if you like, others don't, but a few definitely look like line drawings. And after I read their comments, I felt myself being drawn more towards believing this could be a hoax. But like in all good strange but true stories, the more I read and researched, the more I began to question the things I'd been questioning. The lead researcher of a 1993 article about the faces that appeared in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research noted that some kind of oxidising chemical agent was likely responsible for the stains. The article itself actually explored the presence of three key chemicals that are used or were used as pigments in paint on the floor of Maria's home, zinc, lead and chromium. Although the researchers were not stating explicitly that this meant paint had been used, I think the very mention of it is what paved the way for people to start speculating that all was not what it seemed. When you really dive into this story, the research you start to come across is pretty scientifically complex and tricky to pick apart if you're a non-scientist, not to mention the fact that not all of it is in English. So it would make sense to me that some people latched on to the very mention of paint in a research paper as an explanation. However, there's a good chance they overlooked the numerous studies which concluded that there was, in fact, no trace of paint found on the samples of the Belmez faces concretes that they analysed. One of the most recent studies was conducted back in 2014 as part of an investigative Spanish TV show. Forensic criminalist Luis Alamancos and Doctor of Chemical Engineering José Javier Grasinea were tasked with getting to the bottom of the mystery once and for all, at least from a scientific standpoint. And their findings were pretty astonishing. Not only did they conclude that the faces were not created with the use of paint, but that, quote, According to scientific knowledge and techniques employed in the analysis, there is no external manipulation or elements. They even tried at length to recreate anything remotely similar to the faces, using a range of different chemicals and techniques, and were, in their own words, bewildered by the fact that they simply could not do it. And for all the people who were sceptical or attempted to disprove the authenticity of the faces with scientific experiments, there were just as many who were true believers from the outset. Two of the most notable are paranormal investigator Jose Martinez Romero, who first visited the house in September of 1981, and fellow supernatural sleuth Andrew McKenzie, who joined Jose on another trip to see the faces in 1988. Very eerily, Jose says that he actually witnessed new faces appearing and old ones disappearing in the newer of the two kitchens in Maria's home, which gave me chills. He also believed that the depth of pigment in the images would change in line with the mood or health of Maria herself, 
noting that they could appear to be more faint if she wasn't feeling well. But Jose did not stop there with his observations. He actually theorised that if this thinking was correct, and that the faces were somehow intrinsically linked to Maria, that when she passed away, it's likely that the images would fade and disappear for good. And in 2004, when Maria sadly did pass at the age of 85, the circumstances meant that Jose's theory was put to the test. However, it did not produce the outcome he had predicted. The faces stayed where they were, and the house remained a location that intrigued both believers and sceptics from around the world. But Maria's passing also attracted a man later denounced by the Spanish newspaper El Mundo as a fraudster, self-proclaimed researcher Pedro Amaros. Upon visiting the house, Pedro attempted to form further face-shaped marks in the kitchens using the practice of thoughtography, which is essentially the idea that a person could cause images to materialise on a surface using the power of thought. And although some new faces did appear, the El Mundo newspaper quickly debunked their authenticity. The paper claimed that these new faces were made from water and oil, and threw some serious suspicion on Pedro's qualifications and motives for visiting the house, essentially suggesting it was all an elaborate hoax. In recent years, all kinds of other possible theories and explanations have surfaced, including the suggestion that members of Maria's wider family could have been complicit in forging the images of the faces. In most of what I've read, it appears that the consistent argument as to why the family may have created this con is for financial gain. But I couldn't find any evidence that Maria did make a huge amount of money from allowing people to view the faces. So all things considered, where do I land on the Belmez faces mystery? I feel like throughout the course of my research, I had about 15 different viewpoints and theories of my own because every time I thought one thing could be true, another piece of evidence came along to contradict it. In my personal opinion, I do wonder whether those first few faces, which appeared and then were destroyed with a pickaxe, were indeed the real deal. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, I have had paranormal experiences myself which took place on land that was known to have a dark history. Could it be possible that after those initial faces gained so much attention and recognition from locals, officials and outsiders alike, that Maria or someone in her family decided to keep the momentum going and see what they could make out of the circumstances they found themselves in. I mean, it's possible. I say this mostly because some of the later faces do look a bit too drawn to me. The early abstract ones are a lot more believable and I'll be sure to put photos of both the more authentic looking faces and the ones I think more questionable on our Instagram page. But say, for the sake of argument, everything I've just said is the truth. It still doesn't explain how any potential fake faces were made. It appears that scientists are stumped on the matter, or at least very few of them are in agreement about what exactly the chemical compound that caused the stains could be, 
And it's one part of this story that I just can't understand. And something I keep coming back to when I start believing that it truly could have been financially motivated is this. Why would Maria and her family essentially ruin a large section of their modest home and allow strangers to traipse through it for decades? I can imagine that that would have a significant negative impact on your quality of life day to day. It's very disruptive and by all accounts, Maria had some significant health issues towards the end of her life. So if it all really was an act, why would she keep it up all of these years? And people are still visiting the house to this day. It only takes a quick search on YouTube to find vlogs of people who have an interest in the supernatural making the journey to Belmez for this sole purpose. And don't forget, this is almost 20 years after Maria's death. So I can only imagine how many people were still knocking on her door when she was well into her 80s, hoping to scrutinise the marks. Why would you keep on opening your door and running the risk of being called a liar or a fraud each and every time, unless you knew in your heart that you were telling the truth? and that the faces were indeed genuine. Plus, by all accounts, Maria and her husband Juan were not the kind of people who would carry out such a scam. Not only did they seemingly prefer a quiet life, but it's been noted that their level of education was sadly very minimal, with neither of them being able to read or write. This has led to commentators speculating that it's very unlikely that the couple would have had the necessary scientific knowledge to leave the experts who studied the faces so baffled and essentially outsmart them to cover up their own fraudulent activity. And they do have a point. I mean, I'm sure even people with a high level of education would struggle to pull something like this off. But then, as I was thinking about all of this, I read something else which took me right back to square one. So I wanted to end this episode with a quote from that 1999 BBC article I mentioned earlier. At the very end of the article, the writer Daniel Schweimler, who'd actually visited the Belmez Faces house, said this. As I walked back past the men who'd given me directions, one of them stopped me. Did you see the faces? What did you think? He asked. Did she show you the face of General Franco under the table? No, I replied. Ah, that's because you didn't pay her. She wants money before she shows that one, he explained conspiratorially before rejoining his friends. I so hope that you enjoyed today's story and I'm sure by now it goes without saying that I am so excited to hear your theories. Do you think the whole thing was a hoax? Are you a bit of a half-believer like me or are you totally bought into it being a paranormal happening? All of the details on how to get in touch and let me know your thoughts will be coming up very soon, right after our second instalment of the new Things Are About To Get Weird outro feature, Weird Media. I have been so excited to get to this part of the episode as this week I wanted to pay tribute to the author who is 100% responsible for my horror obsession. Who else but Mr. Stephen King? My wonderful grandpa is the world's biggest Stephen King fan. I think he's read every single one of his books over the years. And when I was younger, I used to beg him and my mum to let me read one too. 
I think I just turned 13 when I was finally allowed to and my grandpa picked the book he thought would be most appropriate for a young teenager which was The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. It was great but it got me hooked and I think they realised that there was no stopping me after that so I started to borrow any Stephen King books my grandpa let me. And when I was 15 I finally got to the book which would end up being my favourite of all time and that is Needful Things. It's not one of his most famous titles but it absolutely blew my mind. I think it's a masterpiece of tension building and when I finished it I truly never felt so bereft. It was like nothing else was amazing enough to fill that book-shaped hole in my life. I don't want to give too much away but the basic premise of the plot is that there is a shop in the town of Castle Rock that sells things like antiques and collectibles and residents keep finding items in there that they cannot believe they have stumbled across and they have this feeling that they need it. But the cost of these items can turn out to be far more than the monetary amount on the price tag. I'm being mysterious on purpose because I don't want to give anything away, but it is an incredible novel. I keep telling myself I'm going to reread it as an adult, but part of me doesn't want to change that perfect impression of it that I currently have in my head, but I'm fairly certain it is as great as I thought it was back then. So if you're looking for a slightly off the beaten track Stephen King book to get your teeth into this year, I would wholeheartedly recommend Needful Things. Right, time for a quick shout out to my research sources for this episode. We have that BBC article from October of 1999 by David Schweinler, an amazing piece on the website Burials and Beyond from June 2019, a medium.com piece by a writer called Amber Blaze from July of 2020, an atlasobscura.com feature on the faces, the El Mundo newspaper article which was from November of 2004, and a great piece on List First, which is where I first found out about this story. I also had to use Wikipedia for some of the information about the findings of the scientific studies, as many of them weren't available to view firsthand for some reason, so it was a bit of a last resort, but in cases like this, that is sometimes the way. So as I mentioned, there are lots of ways you can get in touch. You can find us on Facebook, both through the main podcast page and also the private discussion group. Just search things are about to get weird and you can request to join the private group. In my opinion, this is our most fun platform, so do feel free to join us over there. On Instagram, our handle is at things get weird podcast and on Twitter, it's at about to get weird. You can also pop me an email if you prefer to. The address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. If you have enjoyed this episode and you would like to leave a rating or review wherever you listen, I would be so grateful. I truly appreciate them. Honestly, you should see the look on my face when I notice I have a new rating or review. It's like the biggest smile you've ever seen and it truly means so much. Also, if you ever fancy suggesting an episode topic or you have your own strange but true story to share, I am always all ears. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Thank you.